This is Steve Lawson, and I want to welcome you to Men Who Rock the World. It's an exciting podcast that studies the lives and the legacies of great men in centuries past who have been used by God to turn the world upside down. Uh, These men are reformers. They're Puritans. They are preachers during the Great Awakening. Uh, They have been used even during the evangelical era. And so I want to be able to, to introduce you to them and for you to come under the uh, the influence of their lives. Um, I have had the opportunity to write biographies uh, on many of these men and to spend a year just researching and, and learning about how God used them so mightily. I have the opportunity to, to lecture in seminaries and to speak uh, in church pulpits on, on these great men, and I've even visited on-site leading tour groups to where really history was made. The importance of knowing church history cannot be overstated. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that other than the Bible itself and theology, that the most important thing that a Christian should know is church history. So I want you to join me in this podcast in learning how these great men of faith were so greatly used. God bless you. Well, is this going to work? Is this loud enough for uh, this to work? All right, good. Well, you know, Whitfield did not have a microphone, all right? In fact, uh, you know the story, the account with uh, Whitfield coming to Philadelphia. Benjamin Franklin did the calculation. There were 12 city blocks of downtown Philadelphia that that were packed with people. And he did the math, Benjamin Franklin, that Whitfield could project to 30,000 people at one time. It's an extraordinary uh, story. And that's really where the University of Pennsylvania was founded. Benjamin Franklin raised the money to build a wooden tabernacle in downtown Philadelphia for Whitfield to preach in. And he preached in the tabernacle and then left town. A thousand men got on horses and followed Whitfield to the next venue wherever he was going to preach in New Jersey. And they were left with the wooden tabernacle and that became the first building for the University of Pennsylvania. So that's how the University of Penn was started. All right, we'll have a quiz on this next Thursday. <laughs> See how you're doing. Well, let's begin in a word of prayer. Our Father, as we begin this time together, we desire to emulate men in the faith who are spiritual leaders to us. And each one of us want to be discipling other men behind us, And we need pace setters in front of us who will challenge us and stretch us. And so we thank you for our brother, George Whitfield. And we ask that as we look at his life today, that there would be an inspiration and a motivation that would come upon our hearts that would be very real. Lord, I pray for these brothers here today who serve you so faithfully in their local churches And I ask God that you encourage them in this session. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as others of you are coming in, come on in, find a seat. I'm so grateful uh, for this opportunity to be with you uh, here today as we're going to look at the life of George Whitfield. And not only his life, but I want to answer the question, why Whitfield? Why did God bless George Whitfield so abundantly? And obviously the answer, first of all, is the sovereignty of God. Uh, God uses whom he will, how he will, and where he will. 
But ultimately, there were some qualities about George Whitfield's life that I think, I think made him such a candidate for the Lord to use. So, as we begin, I want to just show you a picture of Mr. Whitfield, and I love this quote, "...the whole world is now my parish. Wherever my master calls me, I'm ready to go and preach the everlasting gospel." Now, there are some great men down through the centuries who have spoken to Whitfield. George, uh, excuse me, Charles Spurgeon, no less than Spurgeon, said, My example in the ministry is George Whitfield. Spurgeon said, There is no end to the interest which attaches to such a man as George Whitfield. Often as I have read his life, I am conscious, conscious of distinct quickening Whenever I turn to it, and I'll have to tell you, as I reread my notes in the hotel restaurant the last couple of mornings, I, I, unashamedly, I tell you this, I have wept. I, I have cried in my booth as I have reread these notes on Whitfield, and I can understand what Spurgeon is saying when he says this. He says, he lived. Other men seem to be only half alive. But Whitfield was all life, fire, wind, force. My own model, if I have such a thing, induced subordination to my master is George Whitfield. With unequaled footsteps must I follow his glorious track. The evangelistic preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon was really forged upon the anvil of George Whitfield. No less than J.C. Ryle, we have all been blessed by Ryle, has said, No Englishman, I believe, dead or alive, has ever equaled him. Now stop right there. That takes in a lot of English preachers. That takes in John Owen, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Puritan divines, the Westminster divines. And J.C. Ryle said, There is no Englishman dead or alive. And when he said alive, that included Charles Haddon Spurgeon who can equal the public ministry of George Whitfield. He went on to say, No preacher has ever been so universally popular in every country that he visited in England, Scotland, and America. John Wesley, uh, a contemporary of Whitfield, said, Have we ever heard of any person since the apostles who testified the gospel of the grace of God through so widely extended a place, through so large a part of the inhabited earth? And the answer to that is, no, we have not. George Whitfield towers in many ways above church history. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, had this to say about George Whitfield. George Whitfield is beyond any question the greatest English preacher of all time. Lloyd-Jones was not one who tossed bouquets of praise around. He said, the greatest English preacher of all time. His influence in England, his influence in Wales, his influence in Scotland, and his influence in America in particular is beyond calculation. We cannot even comprehend the magnitude of the influence of the preaching of George Whitfield. He said, there is no man who has labored with greater zeal in God's kingdom than George Whitfield. Lord Jones once said, other men merely existed, Whitfield lived. John Newton, as you know, writer of Amazing Grace, as a preacher, if any man were to ask me who was second best I had ever heard, 
I should be at some loss, meaning if I had to tell you who's the second greatest preacher I've ever heard in my life, I don't know. There's maybe ten men who could be second best. He goes on to say in this quote, there's only one man who is the greatest preacher I ever heard in my life. His name is George Whitfield. Newton said, it seemed as if he never preached in vain. Perhaps there is hardly a place in all the extensive compass of his labors where some may not yet be found who thankfully acknowledge him as their spiritual father. Wherever he went to preach the gospel of Christ, the hand of God was upon him for good and there were souls that were saved. Sarah Edwards, who sat under some pretty good preaching week by week herself... And the Edwards were never really ones to be swept away with uh, emotional comments. Sarah, Wesley, Sarah Edwards said, It is wonderful to see what a spell he casts over an audience by proclaiming the simplest truths of the Bible. I have seen upwards of a thousand people hang on his words with breathless silence, broken only by an occasional half-suppressed Sob. She goes on to say in this quote that his preaching is almost irresistible. William Cooper has said the apostolic times seem to have returned upon us. And when he came to America, Whitfield, he influenced uh, the men who became the founders of Princeton University, which was the bastion of evangelical Christianity in America in the 19th century. The Tennants, as you recall, William and Gilbert Tennant, they were the first to acknowledge that Whitfield, we need to hear his preaching. And it was through Whitfield's influence that the Log College flourished. I love this last quote by Robert Murray McShane. Oh, for but one week of Whitfield's life in London. If I could just live Whitfield's life for but one week, I would know what it is to be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Robert Murray McShane, as you know, burned out for the Lord at age 29, gave himself so completely to the gospel work that he did not even reach his 30s. And he said, oh, if I could live just one life of Whitfield's, one week of Whitfield's life. Some amazing facts about Whitfield... These are staggering. About 80% of all the American colonists heard him preach at least one time. Face to face. More colonists recognized George Whitfield than would recognize George Washington. He preached in Boston. In the mornings, there would be 8,000 that would gather at 6 a.m. in the morning to hear Whitfield preach. And then in the evenings, there were 15,000 a night. His farewell sermon at, on the Boston Commons drew 23,000 people at a time when Boston's population was less than 20,000. There were more people in Boston to hear Whitfield preach than even lived in Boston. It was the largest gathering in the history of the colonies, the early colonies, more people came to hear him preach than would gather at any other political function. Whitfield's preaching in Philadelphia, he spoke to 6,000 in the mornings 
8,000 in the evenings. The following Sunday, the crowds were 10,000 in the morning on Sunday and 25,000 for the evening service. And his farewell address to Philadelphia, there were 35,000 people that gathered. When he left town, a thousand men jumped on horses and followed him across the river into New Jersey, having no idea where he was even going to preach next. And when he arrived at the next destination, there were 3,000 men from Philadelphia that were already there waiting for him to preach the gospel in the next town. In New York City, when Whitfield preached there, there were 8,000 in the field. Sunday morning, 15,000. Sunday afternoon, 20,000. In Scotland, in Cambuslin, Scotland, near Glasgow, he preached to an estimated 100,000 people. Whitfield's numbers, which were not kept by him, are on the conservative side. There were some 10,000 people, they believe, who came to Christ through that sermon. There was no altar call. There was no coming forward, raising a hand, signing a card or, or anything like that. It was just the power of the preaching of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. In Scotland, he preached to 30,000. In Edinburgh, 20,000. And as he would preach in these shops, in these, in these towns, the commerce would literally come to a standstill. The marketplaces would be empty. Shops would cease. Farmers would leave their plows in the middle of the field, and they would hear the, the shouting from across the field, Whitfield is coming, Whitfield is coming. And they would just drop their equipment, and they would run to the house, gather up the family, put them on the horse, and the farmer would run alongside the horse, and they would run as fast as they could to a country, to a country road, and it was like getting onto the interstate, onto 405, if you will. And there's an account of one man that I have here that I don't think I'll have time to even read where he speaks of there was a furlong, a horse's furlong opening for me to enter onto the country road and the dust was so in the air that it looked like the evening had come. It's extraordinary what God did through this man. In Savannah, Georgia, which is, was not a large city, it was the largest gathering in all of the colonies to hear Whitfield preach there. In his 34 years of public ministry, George Whitfield preached more than 18,000 formal sermons. You know, this ought to be a rebuke to any preacher who says, I just don't know if I can preach on Sunday night. Are you kidding me? Do you not live to preach the Word of God? Whitfield would say the way he got ready to preach on Sunday was to preach every day through the week. That's what made him strong for Sunday. Not resting up, ramping it up. So who was Whitfield? Let me just give you a very quick overview of his life, just this one page, just to re-familiarize yourself. He was born in Gloucester, England, 1714, went to Oxford and was educated there. He had a command of the English language that was extraordinary, you know, there at at Oxford, he joined the Holy Club, which was a group of students who gave themselves in a pietistic way to seek the face of God and to pray. 
And John and Charles Wesley were a part of the Holy Club, and for five years he sought the Lord, yet he was personally unconverted. At age 21, reading Henry Skugel's The Life of God in the Soul of a Man, he was converted at age 21, and he was immediately called to preach. Now listen to this. He was converted at age 21, immediately called to preach within two years he electrified all of England with his preaching. He made his first trip to America in 1734. You need to know he made... He crossed the Atlantic 13 times in his ministry. He spent three years of his life on a boat crossing the Atlantic. He made his first trip across the Atlantic in 1735... Or excuse me, 1738 was here for several months when he returned back to England. The churches of England were closed to him because he preached regeneration. He preached, you must be born again. And it was a threat to the ecclesiastical leadership. And they would not give him entrance into the pulpits of England where he had previously electrified England with his preaching. And it was at that point he said, I will then go into the open fields and preach the gospel of my master and my savior, Jesus Christ. And so it was into the open fields that he went to preach because every church was closed to him and the thousands came into the open fields to hear Whitfield preach. He then returned for his second trip to America in 1740, and you need to know that there has never been a preaching tour like this preaching tour of 1740 since the days of the Apostle Paul. He literally took New England by storm. It was on this preaching trip that he went to Philadelphia and to Boston and and to New York, and more people turned out to hear Whitfield preach the gospel than even lived in New York or Boston or Philadelphia. And there was no advance notice. No one knew where he was going next, and there was no television. It was simply a word of mouth that Whitfield is coming to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was on this preaching trip that the great awakening broke out. And Jonathan Edwards, as he was at Northampton, Massachusetts, there pastoring the one church, he became the theologian of the the Great Awakening. And the next year, 1741, he preached that great sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. But it was Whitfield who was going up and down the Atlantic coast, preaching from town to town to town, who was the gas that was being poured onto the fire of the Great Awakening. In all, there would be seven trips to America to preach the gospel here, and he also, of course, preached throughout England as well as the surrounding places. In all, he made seven trips to America, 15 journeys to Scotland, two to Ireland, one to Gibraltar, and one to Bermuda and Holland. He died in 1770 in Newburyport, Massachusetts, And he asked that wherever he died, he he wanted to die in the pulpit, preaching the Word of God. And he said he wanted to be buried beneath the pulpit where he preached his last sermon. This was his last sermon. His text was 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, "...examine yourselves whether you be in the faith." That night, after preaching that, he would return to where he was staying at an inn, and there were 
Some 6,000 that followed him back to the end. He went up to the second floor and preached a second sermon. And at 10 o'clock, he retired and he died in the middle of the night of what he called a gospel sweat. He literally preached himself to death. They had the funeral there and buried him there, and 6,000 people came to Whitfield's funeral. Edwin Dargan, in his A History of Preaching, said, "...the history of preaching since the apostles does not contain a greater or worthier name than that of George Whitfield." Well, if he was Spurgeon's model, if Lloyd-Jones said, "...we have not seen his equal," what was it about George Whitfield that made him so great? So I want to ask the question, why Whitfield? One, the sovereignty of God. God uses whom He will. But second, there are some character qualities about George Whitfield that I believe ought to impact every one of us in this room today. I want to walk through these as I've studied George Whitfield and poured over the life of George Whitfield. I have to say he's the only historical figure that when I read him... I cry as I read his life. I love Calvin, but he doesn't really move me to tears. I love John Owen, and he puts me to sleep. (laughs) I love Spurgeon, and he fires me up. I love Edwards. He makes me more theologically precise But what Whitfield makes me want to do is just be on the back of a horse and ride from town to town and just preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There needs to be something of that in all of our hearts here today. There needs to be that fire in our bones to preach the glories of Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you five, or excuse me, eight qualities. Number one. I think this is really where it begins. Whitfield possessed a singular devotion to Christ. Begins with his own personal piety, his own personal heart for the Lord. He had a burning, fervent, passionate love for the glory of God's holiness and for the majesty of his only begotten Son. Arnold Dalimore, as you know, has written the two-volume biography on Whitfield says this, quote, We can visualize Whitfield at five in the morning in his room over Harris's bookstore. This is after he was converted. He is on his knees with his Bible, his Greek New Testament, and a volume of Matthew Henry spread before him. With intense concentration, he reads a portion in English, studies its words and tenses in the Greek, and then considers Matthew Henry's exposition of the whole. Finally comes his unique practice of, quote, praying over every line and every word, unquote, in both the Greek and the English, feasting his mind and his heart upon it till its essential meaning has become a part of his very person, unquote. See, Whitfield's practice was to study the Word of God on his knees, to bring himself in submission to the authority of the Lordship of Christ and His written Word, but also to devotionally put Himself 
even in a posture of desiring to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, my mind being now open and large, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees. This proved meat indeed and drink indeed to my soul. Whitfield went on to say, we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it in our own hearts. Listen, you can't take anyone where you haven't already been. You cannot share what you do not already possess. And the depth... The breadth of your ministry will be determined by the depth of your heart for the Lord. Whitfield went on to say, Go to bed seasonably and rise early. Redeem your precious time. Pick up the fragments of it that not one moment of it may be lost. Be much in secret prayer. Converse less with man and more with God. That would be an important thing for us to learn from Whitfield. Talk less to man, talk more to God. He says, I have been wearied almost to death in preaching and writing and conversation and going from place to place. God imparted new life to my soul and enabled me to intercede with Him for an hour and a half and two hours longer. He said, it was upon my knees that I felt the supernatural power of God enabling me in ministry. So this is where it begins. It begins with a singular devotion for the Lord. And by way of application for all of us here today, men, we must be men who know what it is to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, our mind and strength, and to have a fervent, passionate love for Him. Second, the second mark of Whitfield. Whitfield preached an uncompromising gospel. He preached Christ and Christ crucified. The, Christ, the cross was the centrality of his message. It was the sum and substance of his theology. J.C. Ryle once said of Whitfield, few men perhaps ever gave their hearers, listen to this, so much wheat and so little chaff. When you listen to Whitfield preach, there was no stuff. It was all substance because he preached the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not get up to talk about his party, his cause, his interest, or his office. He was perpetually telling you about your sins, your heart, Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost, the absolute need of repentance and faith and holiness. One of the most repeated phrases in his sermons, when you read his sermons, is this little phrase over and over, Oh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Ryle said Whitfield's preaching was singularly lucid and simple. His hearers, whatever they might think of his doctrine, could not fail to understand what he meant. His style of speaking was easy, plain, and conversational. Ryle said he never shot over their heads. Whitfield is known for this account. A woman came up to him and said, Why do you keep telling us we must be born again? He said, Dear woman, because you must be born again. (laughs) We need more preachers like that. We need more gospel-preaching preachers. 
Ryle said, Whitfield met men face to face like one who had a message from God to them. Whitfield would often say this, I have come here today to talk to you about your soul. He was the hound of heaven after the souls of men. The result was that many of his hearers used to think that his sermons were specifically meant for them. Read his sermons and see how many times the word you is mentioned. You must come to Christ. You must repent. You must look to the Lord. You must believe upon Christ. Real preaching gets to the you. Whitfield said, there are many who go around, who go on in a round of duties, a model of performances, performances that think they shall go to heaven. But the truth is they have a Christ in their heads, but they have no Christ in their heart. Whitfield understood how many people were religious but lost. People, Whitfield understood how many people were members of churches, but whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life was a gospel preacher. Third, the third mark, Whitfield preached with a passionate fervor. Whitfield lived in a day when preaching had degenerated into a dry ritual of merely reading one's notes in the pulpit. Let me give you a historical footnote. Whitfield, born 1714, he bursts onto the scene in the 1730s. I would remind you in 1662 was the saddest day in church history. It was the year of the great ejection. Charles II had been in, reinstalled as the monarch over England, and in one day on St. Bartholomew's Day in 1662, 2,000 Puritan preachers were put out of their pulpits. The crown jewels of England were put out of their pulpits. And it was a day in which now the preachers in the church of England were unconverted and unregenerated men. And Whitfield now historically steps into this scene. Whitfield came onto the scene not just dryly reading his homily, he came exhorting and pleading and wooing and calling and begging and even weeping for souls in the pulpit. This was no stoic, cold reading of his sermon notes. Ryle said he preached like a lion. Whitfield said the church is asleep and only a loud voice will awaken it from its slumber. Where are the loud voices today? Where are the men who preach like lions in their pulpits? Ryle said, his soul is all passion. His heart was all fire. Repression for him would have meant extinction. Meaning, if he could not have released the truth that was a fire in his bones, he would have died. It was said that Wesley was the head of this Methodist movement, but Whitfield was the heart and the soul. Lloyd-Jones said that when he preached, he preached with zeal, with fire, with passion, and with flame. Whitfield, 
on occasions would say, as he would in the pulpit be overcome with emotion, you blame me for weeping, but how can I help it when you will not even weep for your own souls, though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction? Ryle said at this time in church history, the sermon had become an entombed relic, a religious art form when Whitfield arrived on the scene and he rescued the sermon and he made it what it ought to have been all along, a desperate plea to a perishing people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. When Whitfield came to Northampton, Jonathan Edwards sat on the front row, and by Edwards' own admission, he wept at the hearing of Whitfield preach the Word of God. We are familiar with the account of David Hume, the Scottish philosopher and skeptic who was challenged as he was going to hear Whitfield preach, and someone said, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. And Hume said, I don't, but he does. Even unbelievers were drawn, skeptics were drawn to hear Whitfield preach because of the depth of the conviction within his heart and his soul as he preached. His preaching involved melting charity. Dallimore, his biographer, said, Whitfield taught the evangelical world a new method of preaching in a day when ministers in general were lacking in zeal and were apologetic in preaching. He preached the gospel, listen to this, with aggressive zeal. He got in your kitchen with the gospel. In undaunted courage, he set mankind on fire. It's passionate zeal. He was the epitome of Richard Baxter's great quote, always preach as a dying man to dying men, as never to preach again. Whitfield was the personification of that. He was blood earnest when he preached. Mark 4, Whitfield possessed a transcendent theology, which is code phrase for biblical Calvinism. He preached the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men, and salvation is of the Lord. He stood in a long line of godly men, George Whitfield, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Owen, the Westminster Divines, Matthew Henry, John Bunyan, John Newton, Jonathan Edwards, and countless others who believed in the godness of God. Whitfield saw God in everything. He saw God in nature, God in history, God in salvation, God in judgment, God in damnation. He saw God governing all things and directing them to His own appointed end. Whitfield said, every doctrine that comes from God leads back to God. He was once questioned by Mr. Harvey about his doctrine. Whitfield said, let me advise, dear Mr. Harvey, laying aside all of his prejudice to read and pray over Paul's epistle to the Romans, and then let him tell me what he thinks of my doctrine. Whitfield said, the doctrines of our election 
and free justification in Christ Jesus, fill my soul with a holy fire and afford me great confidence in God my Savior. I hope we shall catch some fire together, he said to another believer. Nothing but the doctrines of the Reformation can do this. My soul, come thou not near the secret of those who teach such things. He said, man is nothing. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven. Till God works in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. Whitfield said, Jesus Christ saw me from eternity past. He gave me being, He called me in time, and He has freely justified me through His blood. Oh, the blessedness of these evangelical truths, they are indeed the gospel. Whitfield said, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of Calvin, but Jesus Christ has taught it to me. I tell you what a bold confidence that is to know that you've been taught by God the truth of His Word. J.C. Ryle, speaking of his transcendent theology, says, quote, "...strengthened by his reading of the Scriptures, the Reformers and the Puritans, Whitfield grasped the great related chain of truths revealed in the New Testament, the Father's electing love, Christ's substitutionary death on behalf of those whom the Father had given Him, and the Spirit's infallible work." and bringing to salvation those for whom it was appointed. These doctrines of free grace were the essential theology of Whitfield's ministry from the very first until the end, and consequently it was the theology of the movement which began under his preaching in 1737. Whitfield said, I must preach the gospel of Christ, and that I can, cannot now do without speaking of the doctrine of election." Mark Knoll, the church historian at Wheaton, has said, quote, "...although he preached on the bound will, the electing power of God, and the definite atonement, he confessed in a letter to John Wesley early in his career that, I never read anything Calvin wrote. My doctrines I had from Christ and His apostles, I have been taught them of God." Unquote. Whitfield said, we're all born Arminians, and we mature into Calvinists. (laughs) Thank you for that. As Whitfield said, all doctrines that come from God lead us back to God, and there is no truth that brings greater glory to God than that salvation is of the Lord. Whitfield preached, number, number five, Whitfield preached with an evangelistic thrust. He was a harvester of souls. He was a fisher of men. And whether he was in a church or in an open field, a city square, on a ship, in a house, he was continually preaching and proclaiming and announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. Whitfield said, O Lord, give me souls or take my soul. 
George Whitfield said, I believe I was never more acceptable to my master than when I was standing to teach those hearers in the open field. We can understand something of that as preachers, can we not? Spurgeon said, I never feel closer to Christ than when I am preaching the cross upon which He died. Whitfield said, there are always two men standing in the pulpit when I preach the cross. Christ never stands any closer to me than when I am announcing the person and work of Christ. Ryle said, the modern revivalist may be surprised to hear that Whitfield called no one to the altar, did nothing to encourage emotional excitement, and preached that true revival could be measured only by whether people grew increasingly into the likeness of Jesus. He would simply say that brother so-and-so or Mr. So-and-so was hopefully converted. Lloyd-Jones says of Whitfield, he was the first to see that Christ's ministers must do the work of fishermen. They must not wait for souls to come to them. They must go after souls and compel them to come in. He did not sit lamely by his fireside like a cat on a rainy day, mourning over the wickedness of the land. He dived into holes and corners after sinners. He hunted out ignorance and vice wherever it could be found. I'll never forget the first Whitfield sermon I read, entitled The Conversion of Zacchaeus. I picked it up and reread it the other night. I don't think I've ever preached a day in my life, not after reading Whitfield preaching the conversion of Zacchaeus. Listen to this little excerpt. I offer you salvation this day. The door of mercy is not yet shut. There does yet remain a sacrifice for sin. For all that will accept of the Lord Jesus Christ, He will embrace you in the arms of His love. Oh, turn to Him. Turn in a sense of your own worthiness. Tell Him how polluted you are, how vile, and be not, and be not faithless, but believing. Why fear that the Lord Jesus will not accept you? Your sins will, not, will be of no hindrance. Your unworthiness will be of no hindrance. If your own corrupt hearts do not keep you back, nothing will hinder Christ from receiving you. He loves to see poor sinners coming to Him. He is pleased to see them lie at His feet, pleading His promises. And if you thus come to Christ, He will not send you away. Let me beseech you to come to Jesus Christ. I invite all of you to come to Him and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. He is ready to receive you. I invite you to come to Him that you might find rest for your souls. He will rejoice and be glad. He calls you by His ministers. Oh, come unto Him. He is laboring to bring you back from sin and from Satan. My soul is full. It is quite full. And he goes on and on. He then comes to this dramatic moment in the sermon as it escalates to the end. And he says, Make haste then, O sinners. Make haste and come by faith to Christ. Then this day, even this hour, nay, this moment, if you believe Jesus Christ shall come and make His abode in your hearts, He will. 
Which of you is made willing to receive the King of glory? Which of you obeys His call as Zacchaeus did? Alas, why do you stand still? How know you whether Jesus Christ may ever call you again? Come then, poor, guilty sinners. Come away, lost, poor, undone publicans. Make haste, I say, and come away to Jesus Christ. The Lord condescends to invite Himself to come under the filthy roofs of the houses of your souls. Do not be afraid of entertaining Him. He will fill you with all peace and joy. Do not be ashamed to run before the multitude as did Zacchaeus and to have all manner of evil spoken against you. One side of Christ will make all amends for this. Do not therefore put me off with your frivolous excuses. There is no excuse can be given for your not coming to Christ. You are lost, undone, without Him. And if He is not glorified in your salvation, He will be glorified in your damnation. If He does not come and make His abode in your hearts, then you will make your eternal abode in hell forever. Oh, that the Lord would be pleased to call you to Himself this day. Oh, that He may call you by His Spirit and make you a willing people in this the day of His power. For I know my calling will not do unless He, by His efficacious grace, compel you to come to the Savior. Oh, that you once felt what it was to receive Jesus Christ into your hearts. You do not love Christ because you do not know Him. You do not come to Him because you do not feel your want of Him. You are not brokenhearted as you should be. You are not yet sick of your sin as you should be. Oh, that God would wound you with the sword of His Spirit and cause His arrows of conviction to stick deep into your hearts. Oh, that I would see some of you sensible of this. And here you cried out, Lord, break this hard heart of mine. Lord, deliver me from the body of this death. Oh, Lord, draw me near to you. Make me willing to come to you. Lord, I am lost. Oh, save me, Lord, or I perish. The pleading of Whitfield. And we who are so compelled, rightly so, to preach exegetical exposition, Verse by verse by verse by verse, I stand on that solid rock. Let us never lose the evangelistic passion to do what Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number six. Mark number six, Whitfield possessed an indomitable spirit. George Whitfield was a driven man. It is difficult to find any figure in church history who can match the industry and the energy of this man who so threw himself into God's work 
I would urge you to read Whitfield's two-volume by Dalimore. It will just make you want to preach. It will make you want to get on the back of a horse and just ride through the mall (laughs) and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whitfield said, I'm never better than when I am on the full stretch for God. He said, I scarcely have time to eat. Some men live to eat. Other men eat to live. Whitfield ate merely to live. He lived to preach. Whitfield said, we are immortal until our work for God is done. Christ's labors must live by miracle. If not, I must not live at all. My continual vomitings almost kill me. And the pulpit is my only cure. Whitfield said, the more we preach, the better we preach. Every act strengthens the habit. He said, the best preparation for preaching on Sundays is to preach every day of the week. I would remind you, you made seven visits to America, crossed the Atlantic 13 times, two tours of Ireland, 15 trips to Scotland, to England, to Wales, hardly a town where he did not lift up his voice. There are times when Whitfield would go in Scotland or England to the fair, which is like going to Mardi Gras or something. And there would be all of the booths set up by the merchants as they were selling their, their wares. And Whitfield had a portable pulpit, and he would set it up in the open field next to the booths at the fair, and he would stand on, the, on his platform, and he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the people would be drawn from the booth to come over to listen to him preach, and it would hurt the business of the merchants so bad that they would then begin to gather things to throw at Whitfield and try to knock him off of his platform. I mean, we get upset if a beeper goes off in the service. I mean, get tough. You don't even know what it is to preach with distractions. They would, they would gather up dog dung, and they would gather up the blood of cats, and they would put them in sacks and hurl them at Whitfield as he would be preached. There was one time he was attacked en route going to another city and almost had the very life beaten out of him. And he continued to go and went there and preached. It's like Paul at Lystra. They beat him so bad, they ran him out of town. They thought he was dead. Paul got up and went back in and finished the sermon. (laughs) That was Whitfield. He had an indomitable spirit. He said, I am weary in the work, but never weary of the work. 
told you he preached in his life, they have estimated 18,000 formal sermons. And that doesn't count the follow-up sermon after the sermon. And times he preached the gospel in homes, and some of them were to royalty. They estimated some 30,000 sermons in the 34 years of his ministry. You can do the math on that. He said, I would sooner wear out than rust out. The church leaders have thrust me out. He said, I know go, I now go out to the highways and the hedges and compel harlots and publicans and sinners to come into the master's house. Arnold Alamore said, writing in his biography, it's hard to single out really any one year because virtually every year of his life looks the same. On constant go for God. He literally died preaching, as I told you earlier. He said, may I die preaching. I hope yet to die in the pulpit or soon after I come out of it. Number seven, Mark number seven. Whitfield possessed a supernatural empowering. No man can live like this in his own strength. No man can live like this in his own ability. The only way a man can live like this and preach like this and write like this, and by the way, Whitfield is one of the greatest writers I've ever read. You ought to get his book by Banner of Truth on his letters. They have compiled his letters. These are the most beautifully written letters you could possibly read. He was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God. Lloyd-Jones commenting on Whitfield's empowering said there's a tremendous difference between uttering truths and preaching. He said you may have a correct and an orthodox message, but it does not necessarily follow that you are preaching. The effect of such preaching, of course, was simply overwhelming of Whitfield's preaching. He tells us himself about what he observed in the past of the poor coal miners in Kingswood. This is an, an incredible account. These poor men had just come out of, the, out of their mines. They were underground working in the coal mines. Whitfield comes through Scotland, and they begin flooding out of the coal mines to hear Whitfield preach in the open field. And Whitfield said, as I was preaching to them, I suddenly began to observe white furrows in their black faces. It was the tears that were streaming down their faces as these rugged, sinful men were coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God as the gospel was being preached. This goes way beyond the giftedness of the man. This now is a work that only God can do. An interesting account that I came across, Samuel Davies, who, who Lloyd-Jones said was the greatest preacher in America next to Jonathan Edwards. He followed Edwards as president of Princeton. Samuel Davies was raising money for Princeton, for the founding of Princeton or the expansion of Princeton in the early years, got on a ship 
and cross the Atlantic to come to London to raise money in London for Princeton. And when he arrived to London, he asked this question, is Mr. Whitfield in town? He was, and Samuel Davies went to hear Whitfield preach. And he talks about that particular message, how Whitfield, from a natural perspective, was off his game that day, but how the power of God so rested upon his life. He said it was worth getting on a ship and crossing for those many weeks the dangers of the Atlantic just to hear Whitfield preach with the power of the Holy Spirit of God upon him. A last mark of Whitfield. He possessed a self-effacing humility. He was like Calvin. He would never talk about himself. And whenever he did, it was self-effacing. Whitfield would never allow any school to be named after him, any movement, any institution. Whitfield said again and again, let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. He cared little for money. He had opportunities to amass a fortune. And with the money that he received for preaching, he founded an orphanage in Georgia. Ryle said he was a man of remarkable disinterestedness. He was marked by a man with a singleness of eye. He seemed to live only for two objects, the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Whitfield suffered the death of his four-month-old son who died in the very home in which he was born and was buried in the very church in which he was ordained to the ministry. It was like a dagger into his heart. And God used that to cripple him and to humble him as he preached. We need to recapture the spirit of Whitfield, which is really the spirit of the Holy Spirit of God upon the preacher. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in conclusion, writes, Whitfield, I believe, is calling us back to preaching When the Spirit comes, the programs will be forgotten. Time will be forgotten. Everything will be forgotten except God and His glory and my soul and His blessed, this blessed Savior. May God give us back to preaching. Not a mere mechanical statement of correct views, but let us pray, God, so to grant us His Spirit that though we may never become and shall never become, it is certain, preachers in the sense of George Whitfield in the sense of George Whitfield was. Ryle said, Whitfield wrote, no book 
For the million of worldwide fame, like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he headed no crusade against an apostate church with a nation at his back, as did Luther. He founded no religious denomination which pinned its faith on its writings like John Wesley. There are Lutherans, there are Wesleyans in the present day, but there are no Whitfieldites, no. The great evangelist of the 18th century was simply a guileless man who lived for one thing only, and that was to preach Christ. If he did that, he cared not for anything else. In volume one, and I close with this, of Dalimore's biography, I remember reading this when I was a seminary student in the summer of 1978, and I've never forgotten this. Please let me read this. Come to the end of this book. He says, Yes, yea, this book is written in the desire, perhaps in a measure of inner certainty, that we shall see the great head of the church once more bring into being his special instruments of revival, that he will again raise up unto himself certain young men, whom he may use in his glorious employ... And what manner of men will they be? And all of this flowing out of this book with the biography of Whitfield as the backdrop. Men mighty in the Scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty and holiness of God. And their minds and hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions, men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will suffer, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth's accolades, but to win the Master's approbation. When they appear before His awesome judgment seat, they will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes, and upon whose ministries God will grant extraordinary power. And he goes on to say, Oh, may God raise up such George Whitfields again in this generation. May there be men here today who will rise up in this hour and in this generation and who will be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who will have an indomitable spirit and will be driven for the cause of Christ and be men upon whose hand the Spirit of God rests in extraordinary power, men who know their God and who know their Christ and who have evangelistic zeal to reach this world for the kingdom of God. May we all be such men, and may it break loose here at this Shepherds' Conference, and may we storm the beaches wherever it is that God has placed us to serve Him. And may we hold high the banner of truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Men Who Rock the World. If you want to follow us on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at onepassion.org. Please join me next week for the next episode of Men Who Rock the World.